0: As extremist groups surrounded his apartment in Aden, Yemen, Mohammed Al-Samawi made a last-ditch appeal for help from his Facebook network. Amazingly, over the course of two weeks, four near-strangers devised a daring mission to lead him to safety, an improbable journey that spans six technological platforms in 10 time zones. Al-Samawi shares his moving story in the new book, The Fox Hunt, which was picked up last year for a film adaptation by La La Land producer Mark Platt and the Oscar-winning screenwriter of Spotlight, Josh Singer. Al-Samawi joined Ivy for a live conversation in New York City to tell the tale of his miraculous escape to freedom from war, rebel fighters, and al-Qaeda extremists.
1: Good evening. Thank you all for coming. Mohamed, welcome. Thank you. So I'm Bruce Feiler, as you've heard, and um, I have spent a fair bit of uh, my adult life traveling in and around uh, the Middle East. As you just heard, I've written... New York Times bestsellers, many of them involving uh, religion and interfaith, walking the Bible, and Abraham. And I don't know, perhaps Ivy has a slogan, but I think of tonight as stimulating conversation with interesting people. So he's the interesting people. My job is the stimulating conversation. And my philosophy of such things, which I've shared with him, I will now share with you, is I'm going to ask him a handful of the easiest questions I can think to ask him. I'm then going to ask him a handful of the hardest questions uh, I can think to ask him, and then we're going to get into a handful of questions that I think of as kind of practical takeaways for all of us who are involved in one way or another, not only in loving books, but in making the world a better place. So we're going to talk tonight, our story is going to begin in the Middle East. So let's do a little bit of show of hands. Who here has been to the Middle East? Okay. So we have, that's about 80% of the hands, okay? Now let's talk about where we've been. Who here's been to Israel, okay? Who's been to Egypt? Let's see, Turkey, okay, Iraq, Um, Iran. By the way, go to Iran. I've been to 90 countries in my life. Iran is my favorite. Um, uh, Saudi Arabia. Um, And who here has been to Yemen? Look at that, am I right? Not a single hand has gone up. So that, Muhammad, is where we are going to start. Yeah, we are unique. We're going to start with what is Yemen and why does it exist? Because there it is, right, at the southern tip of the Arabian Peninsula, okay? Saudi Arabia takes up most of the peninsula. You've got, you know, Oman uh, just to the north of it. In fact, Yemen, as we speak, may be in the process of dividing into two countries. So what is Yemen and why is it even a country?
2: Um, <laughs> uh, well, I mean, Yemen is, <laughs> that's a good question, actually. Um, <laughs> but Yemen is a country that, as you said, it's actually uh, in the south of Saudi Arabia and also is in the west of Oman. And Yemen is a poor country comparing to those all rich countries among Yemen. Um, the Yemen used to be two countries. And then after 1990 and 1994, Yemen became one country again. Uh, Normally, you know, Yemen was north of Yemen, south of Yemen. After the United United Yemen, it became one president, and he was ruling Yemen for 32 years, like, uh, mostly, like, since I was born. Um, And that's how I know Yemen. But when the Arab Spring started in Yemen, uh, everything bad happened.
1: Okay, so we're going to get our we're going to work our way toward the Arab Spring. It's going to be kind of a, a theme in in some ways to the backstory of what we're going to talk about. Well, let's go back because if you go to the ancient world, Yemen, in part because of where it was, actually has a connection with a number of, of with the sort of the roiling faith tradition um, as these religions were emerging in in the ancient world. Beginning, and you write about this in your book, beginning with. Judaism, right? So the Jews show up in Yemen in the middle of the first millennium, right? So there's this idea even that the Queen of Sheba, Correct. so that this was, that this could, some people believe that this was in Yemen. So can we go back to the ancient world, right? Before you know, Islam and before Christianity and before Judaism, uh, this was a kind of a, a place that people traveled through on their way from one place to another.
2: It was kind of like the main road, actually, to, to go for trading, actually, between the West and East. Um, and also, as you said, like, you know, Queen Sheba, which is famous in Yemen. And not only that, but, you know, mocha, as you know, the coffee actually is what is actually invented in Yemen. The mocha that you know right now is actually can from the name mocha. That it's a village in Yemen. Um, and that's how, you know, the history of Yemen and Yemen has a strategic place. Uh, it's kind of connecting Africa to Asia in some way. Uh, a lot of trading, like even from India was coming through Yemen also as well. Um, and then after that, yes, there was Judaism actually in Yemen. Christianity also was there. Right, Judaism. so we have Jews
1: going in the in the Jewish diaspora in the middle of the first millennium, right? After Jews are taken out of Israel, they go to Babylon. After Babylon is freed, some go back to Israel, but some go to Iran, and some go south. So there's Jews there in the middle of the first millennium.
2: Correct, but even though, even when Israel was exist, uh, Yemenis themselves, like the Jews, wanted to stay in Yemen, even though uh, it it, it, it talk from them a long time until they decided a lot for them to leave. But even until today, even with the, with the war in Yemen, some of the, of the Jews still live in Yemen.
1: Um, so Christianity, was Christianity ever big or popular in yes. Yemen? <laughs> so, but when you, but Islam comes in the seventh in the century and it went, when it spreads throughout, okay, so we're quite close to where, um, of course, the Prophet Muhammad was. But when you were growing up, is this history that you knew? Or is, you're only taught, essentially, uh, history of Yemen after the arrival of Islam?
2: History of Yemen after the arrival of Islam. That's most of what we are focusing about. And that's what I was teaching. Like, when, when I was in school, most of the time that you learn about Muslims in Yemen, you don't learn about other religions who actually exist also in Yemen.
1: So you were born in 1986. Do I have that right? 30. What's your birthday? Uh, November 30th. November 30th, okay. So we don't have to have a birthday celebration. <laughs> we don't have to have that. Um, and in terms of the Muslim tradition in which you're born, uh, there is a divide in Yemen, if I have this correctly, um, as in many countries, in, uh, Muslim countries around the world, between Sunni and Shia. So it's basically, what, 60% Sunni and 40%
2: Shia? Yes, but it wasn't really exist even before 2015. Mm. Even before the war in Yemen, actually... We are only Muslims. We go to pray in mosques. There is no difference if you are Sunni or if you are Shia. Nobody actually cares what's your background, but everything happened because of the war.
1: So your parents, tell us about tell us about the home life you you, you grew up in, because your parents are middle class, right? The, medical uh, a medical family. Um, so tell me about your parents.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, my both parents met in, in Russia. Actually, they both are medical doctors and um they're amazing parents you know i don't know if you can notice that but um, i have a small disability in the right side of my body i have disability in the right hand and right leg and because i have great parents they taught me that you know i should do things even if i have a disability i should challenge myself and i have two brothers also and two sisters and all of them actually in the medical field i am the only one who didn't become a doctor
1: but this was um, so wait a minute, so, so you, they raised you with the Jewish idea of becoming a doctor or the Muslim <laughs> idea of becoming a doctor? Um, but this was a big deal. So, so you were born with this disability?
2: It came to me when I was a child and uh, it was a little bit hard for me. Like, can you believe when you see other kids who can play football or ride a bicycle and I couldn't do anything of that, but my parents taught me that I shouldn't be jealous from other kids. I should have a talent so other kids would be jealous from me. Mm-hmm. And that's how I learned how to speak English.
1: Um, so, um, but this wasn't always great, right? Because every, all your other children, so your father is a doctor. My
2: father's a doctor. And your mother is a doctor. Too. Is a doctor.
1: So everybody wants to be a doctor, but you can't be a doctor. So this was painful for them, for you, for everybody, for nobody?
2: Uh, I think it was kind of reality. Like, you know, they understand that I couldn't be a doctor because of my disability. Um, for example, like here in Yemen, you can be, a, yeah, like here in the United States, you can be a therapist. Uh, any man is kind of like, it's not a popular thing to be a therapist. You need to do, you need to be a doctor who can do surgeries, who can do some medical like uh, procedures,
1: Uh, procedures, got it. Okay. So how, so how were you upset by this, that you couldn't be a doctor?
2: Yes. I was always angry actually from God. I was angry from God because he gave me such a disability. I was thinking like, why me? Why God choose that? He gave me such disability.
1: So what's the answer?
2: Well, I found the answer later on because of uh, what happened to me and that I am here today with you is actually because of my disability. Um, because of my disability, as I said, I learned how to speak English. And because I learned how to speak English, I had the chance one day when I was 23 years old, to read the Bible. And when I read the Bible, I had the chance actually to start understand the similarities between Judaism, Christianity, and Islam.
1: Okay, so you get, the, Wait, I, I want to know a little bit, I've heard you tell this story a few times. So you, you meet somebody. Yeah. Okay, so tell us about the meeting. So, so you're in university at this time, or you have graduated? Yes,
2: I was in university. I met a teacher, his name is Luke, he's from UK, from England.
1: So he's a British teacher who's living in Yemen in and Sana'a. teaching.
2: He was teaching English in Yemen.
1: And you're, we should say this, you're in the capital city. Yes. Right. Correct. So, And that is in basically northwest of the country. Um, but it's not on the water. No. Uh, but it's it's up closer to Saudi Arabia, then uh, this story is going to move as we as we move along. Right. So you go to universities to study what? Business,
2: business administration.
1: Business administration. So you're going to be an entrepreneur or you're going to work in a big
2: company? Or? No, my dad wanted me to handle the clinic. Uh, basically, all of them doctors and they need someone to handle the whole thing.
1: Oh, I see. Okay. So you're going to be the insurance guy. Okay. Um, um, so you've come to the right country. We need help with this. Okay. Anyway, um, we're going to get there in the story. Okay. So you you're in university, you have this instructor. But before we get to this, I want to know what was your, on a scale of one to 10? What was your degree of religiosity? If, if we might, in other words, your parents are doctors. This is middle class. This is a family that's educated. This is a, you, it's a poor country. Many, some people say it's the poorest country in the Middle East, okay? So, but you're educated, so on a scale of one to ten, ten being utterly devout, uh, one being completely secularized. Where are you on this before you read the Bible?
2: I was really know a lot about Islam. Like, as anyone of, in Yemen, uh, when you go to school, for example, in Yemen, you teach, you learn five subjects about Islam every year. So, by the Islam, end,
1: five. Uh, you know, five. Five's a big number. Five is a big number.
2: <laughs> But you learn a lot of things about Quran. You learn a lot of things about the Prophet Muhammad and about how he lived his life. You learn a lot about the Sharia, the Islamic Sharia. So you became kind of more uh, knowledge about what Islam is about. But uh, about the other religions, you just know a little bit about that.
1: Have you ever been to Mecca? Anybody,
2: you or anybody in your family no. do the Hajj? No. Yes, all my family did except me. Again.
1: <laughs> okay, really. Um, but you didn't answer my question. So on a scale of 1 to 10, how religious were you? I would say 8. 8? Okay. Um, so suddenly someone hands you, he tells you, he gives you a Bible, or he says, you should read the Bible?
2: No, it was actually me. Um, I saw Luke, and he, he was Christian. And I thought about him, he's the perfect guy, except that he's not a Muslim. Uh, and I wanted to let, be, let him be the perfect man. And so I want to convert him to Islam, and I gave him the... And I gave him a, a copy of the Quran.
1: You thought you were going to convert him? True. Wow. Okay. So what happened? How'd that, how'd that work out?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I thought that he would just tell me thank you and would we'll read it. But instead of that, he, tell, he gave me a copy of the Bible. And he told me in the same time I'm reading the Quran, I want to also read the Bible.
1: And your reaction
2: is? I was surprised. <laughs> I, was, I was thinking that, you know, first of all, there's not a lot of Bibles in Yemen. And I didn't know why he gave me the Bible. And when I went back home, I remember that, you know, he gave, he gave it to me with a plastic bag so nobody can see it with me in the streets. Ah. And I went back home and I started reading it from the first page, but I never wanted to read it because I want to understand. I want to read it because I want to say, "Aha, uh-huh, my book is much better than this book. Huh. And from the first page, I start having like this kind of hard questions. I want to ask him so he couldn't answer and then he will convert to Islam. Wow. So, I start from the first page, reading all this page about how God created the, the universe and all these things, the sky and the earth and the human being. And I give him a call and I start asking these hard questions. For example? For example, I told him, like, you know, how God created us as his, on his image. So, do we look like God? Is God looked like us? How a God can be looked like us? For example, in Islam, nothing like God. But in, in, in the Bible, it says, like, we look like God. So does God look like us? Does he have eyes, nose, and ears, and all these things? So I asked him such questions. And by the way, when he gave me the Bible, I didn't know that the Bible has Old Testament, New Testament. I only thought that I'm only reading the Christian Bible. So when I started reading from the book, because you start reading the book from the beginning, I was actually reading the Jewish Bible. I was actually reading the Old Testament. And when I gave him a call, I started asking these hard questions. His reaction was, no, no, Muhammad, I wanted to read in the middle of the book. I wanted to start with the New Testament.
1: Ah, well, there's the history of uh, Christianity for you in one (laughs) sentence. So, um, um, Hold on a second here. So I want to know how come he happens to have a Bible? Is he trying to convert you too? Is this like one of these, like you know, like, the, like spy movies from the 1950s, where each side is trying to recruit the other secretly at the same time?
2: No, I mean th- there is a lot of people like. Is it even... like Gideons on the front? <laughs> no, um. no, no. I think he also has kind of like a missionary uh, behavior that you know. Also, as I want to show the best of my religion, he also wants to show the best of his religion.
1: By the way, this is a great TV show. We could have, like, you know, rival missionaries, like, asking tough questions about the Bible. (laughs) Think of them, you know, the the two billion people on, three billion people on earth who descend from these traditions. Okay, so what's the toughest question you thought to
2: ask him? Uh, This question that I ask you right now, like, how God look like us. uh, Is is God really has an eyes? Is God is a man or a a female?
1: Because Islam... There is no representation, right? No. You you cannot depict the Prophet Muhammad. You can't.
2: Muhammad. You can't actually even think about God about something else. Like you can't God nothing like like what we can imagine.
1: So you read the, you read the opening passage of Genesis, and you and did you imagine like the guy, old guy with the white hair and the beard like that we think of you know in the West when we think of this or no you uh,
2: kind of uh, yeah I mean I I thought about like a white man with a white hair and thing like that yeah. Um,
1: so, okay, so you call him up and he says, no, 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 don't read that part of the Bible. Read the New Testament, okay? Yes. And, and by the way, as long as you're now in interfaith relations, when you deal with this, we don't actually call it, this is actually kind of a soapbox of mine. We, don't, we shouldn't call it the Old Testament. We can call it the Hebrew Bible because it existed before. Actually, even the phrase Old Testament is actually a Christian way of looking at that book, if I can be a tad pedantic here. But now back to the question. So did you then go read the
2: New Testament? I was studying the New Testament, but also I was reading also the Old Testament. And it was curious for me because, listen, in, for me since I was a kid, I was always thinking about why Jews really want to kill us, why Jews really hate us. Because I can see what's happening in Palestine between Palestinians and Israelis. And what I see in the media, like you know, how Israeli soldiers like kill the Palestinians, I feel like why, how kind of like, Jews hate us that much. So I thought in myself that, in, in Islam and also in school, they teach me that the Bible and the Torah is a holy book. But rabbis changed the book. So it became more violent. It became more incorrect. So I started reading that, and I was trying to find these kind of things. But you know what happened? I started finding the similarities between the Quran and the Bible.
1: So you're trying to convert him. And then, in fact, what you did is you found similarities between your own story and your own tradition in the text. Correct. Does this create a crisis?
2: In a way, yes, because it's an amazing book. And I was thinking, like, you know, I will find the answer that I can say, aha, uh-huh, that's why Jews are so violent, or that's why Christians are different from us. But I found that it's the same message that you'll find it in Quran. And I can't understand why we're fighting each other if we have such the same message. So it was kind of confusing for me. I was asking, I was able actually to find people who's Christians in Yemen. For example, Ethiopians or Indians who used to live in Yemen. I was able to ask them questions it was very, very hard for me to find a Jew and ask him a question about
1: So there's this wonderful scene in your book where you're at the clinic and your dad, you know, is trying to get you to come into the family business. And you're doing this in the morning. And then you're secretly Googling, like, you know, Yemen and plus Jew, right? You know, <laughs> so this is what's, what's happening. Now, um, as, as we all know, you know, uh, Facebook, Google, they have all this data. You know, we're all worried about, about searching. Are you, wor- when this is happening to you, are you worried at what point do you go from this is interesting to I can't talk to people around me about what I'm thinking and feeling?
2: Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, it was it has both feelings. Um, my dad is an amazing human being, but because of my disability, he was always trying to protect me. He was always trying to be with me or with my mom all the time. And this thing that has two things for me. First of all, I find that I really want to know what's the purpose of my life. And what should I do in my life? And also I want to do something that it's my own thing, not with my dad, not with my mom, just do it by myself. Um, and as I told you, like, you know, I was searching for Jews and I couldn't find them in, in real life. Because there were hundreds
1: of thousands of Jews a hundred years ago in Yemen, and they all left. Not all. Uh, 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 all but about 50, as you know, sort of, what, what, uh, sort of a few, few dozen are there. It, uh, what was it called? It was called operate, the uh, escape the Jewish the magical carpet exactly um, uh, operation magic carpet and they and they evacuated them to Israel in the early uh, time of the state of Israel so they're not that many around you can
2: correct mm-hmm. yes and also like you know Jews in general in Yemen they live in a small area and you know nobody can communicate with them. They don't work like us. They don't, you can't find from them doctors or uh, engineers or anything like that.
1: But no, Jew, there are no Jewish doctors in Yemen. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I mean, th- that's one thing that's bad about, you know, how Jews was dealing in Yemen. Yeah. They didn't have the same privilege as us. Like, you know, they're always having their own sacred life in some way you can say. So I was trying to find Jews, but I couldn't find them. And then I discovered something called Facebook.
1: And then you got what? you got lots of games and cat pictures <laughs> no, and dogs. No, so how do no. we get from Facebook to like you're becoming an international activist?
2: <laughs> it, was, it was this question that, you know, I was thinking to myself that, you know, maybe through Facebook I can find Jews. And I asked them, why do you hate us if you have such amazing books? <laughs> uh, so I started trying to find Jews, but how to do it on Facebook. So I started reading the word. I was, write, uh, I was like taping Israel. And, you, you know, at that time... Facebook was to you suggestions from people from Israel. That time.
1: So what year are we talking about now?
2: Uh, I think it will be 2009, 2010, something like that. Got it. And when I taped it, you know, they gave me some options, and I started seeing the options. And guess what? I found beautiful women from Israel, and, you know, I started adding the beautiful women in Israel as friends. <laughs> so you, so you, go, you go randomly friending
1: beautiful women... You do realize this is Facebook and not Tinder, right, at the time?
2: I, I didn't know what Tinder at that time, but yes. Um, and you need to know my, my Facebook profile. I had a big mustache and, uh, uh, and, like, traditional clothes. And my name is Mohammed Samawi, and I add Israeli girls. You can imagine that actually nobody accepted my request. Yes,
1: I can imagine. I can imagine. Okay, so so who was the first person to... And you said, hi, I'm looking for Jews, I want to be your friend? Uh, <laughs> As pickup lines, is, I don't think that... Um, actually,
2: it is, it is similar. Uh, uh, f- first of
1: all... The irony is, part of I grew up Jewish in Georgia, and this is how we were raised, too, <laughs> except that our mothers did it. They would go on the internet for us and find the Jewish women and then try to hook us up, actually. Uh, Their entire service is devoted to this, okay? Well, you, created, you created the Yemeni J-date, it sounds like.
0: Okay.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I like that, actually. But... Um, no, what I did, I started, as I said, like adding people on Facebook randomly. And you can imagine that, you know, a lot of them, they didn't respond. And then I had this typical message that I was sending to everyone. And it's actually also kind of like funny because I was saying, greetings from Yemen. <laughs> My name is Muhammad. I know you're a Jew. I know you're living in Israel. And you hate me and want to kill me. <laughs> what do you think about Yemenis? What do you think about Muslims? You're ah. sincerely Muhammad.
1: Ah, okay. And so somebody writes you back.
2: I mean, a lot of them. They never even respond because yeah. it's like scam. And some of them they think like Nigerian prince who want a million dollars something exactly. like <laughs> that. Right, <right>, right.
1: uh, <laughs> Please give me your credit card, and I will send you traditional Yemeni goods. Yes. Um, and <laughs> by the way, there's a total Yemeni food food craze in Tel Aviv now. By the way, it's the hottest food. If you'd known that, you would have been. T- anyway, keep going. Uh,
2: and <laughs> and um, other of them like they were very like you know feeling like, okay, someone from Yemen asking this question, no, we don't hate you, now move on, like, hi and bye. And others were very interested in someone from Yemen asking questions, and one of them is named Nimrud Bin Zayef. He's a Jew, at that time he lives in Tel Aviv, now he lives in Philadelphia. And he responded to my message, and he said, like, no, we, we are not hating you. And he started showing me things, and he started learn- teach me, actually, how to use Facebook in the right way, kind of. <laughs> he started showing me about other peace activities that I can't find on Facebook. Uh, peace pages that I can find Jews, Muslims, Christians all together in that page. And that page was called Yalla Young Leaders. It's an Israeli-Palestinian page. It still exists until today. I'm sorry, what's it called? Yalla Young Leaders. Yalla means come on in, in Arabic. And also in Israel, they use it the same thing as come on. And I was not that page, but I was afraid. I was afraid to click like on that page because if you click like, my friends, my family, my community can see that I like an Israeli-Palestinian page. Mm-hmm. And that's a dangerous thing. So the first thing I started, I started sending private messages to the, to the page itself saying, I like that post.
1: Ah, oh, right. Wow. Okay. This, by the way, is sort of a Facebook wet dream. I mean, now that Facebook is on the defensive in this country, like, this is what Facebook wanted to be, like, building bridges and making peace and, and like, hooking up young people <laughs> like, you know, we're bigger than borders and bigger than religion. You, like, embodied it.
2: You should understand that, you know, Facebook for us in a lot of countries is just the window to see what's happening in the world. Like, in, in a lot of countries, you only listen to the news from one resource, from the formal uh, newspaper or from the formal news and you don't know really what's the other side or what's happening in the world, Facebook actually gave us the window of that. And it gave me the window of this also as well, because when I started being participating in the Young Leaders, I found the purpose of my life. I found why God gave me such a disability. And I start mentioning the similarities between Judaism, Islam, and Christianity.
1: So we got to move the story along here because we want to uh, have plenty of time to open up for questions. So you start making these connections and then ultimately you start going to conferences.
2: And one time, you know, I found that, you know, I need to meet a Jew in my life. (laughs) Uh, I met a Christian, but I never met a Jew. So I applied for a conference in Bosnia. And I, you know, I traveled to Bosnia and I met the first Jew in my life. He wasn't only a Jew. He was Jew, Israeli, and gay. It's like three in one for me. (laughs) Because, of course, the best place to meet young, gay, Israeli Jews is Bosnia.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, so who paid for you to go to Bosnia? We're, uh.
2: So that's also another thing. When I applied for the conference, I thought that they would pay for my visa, for my ticket, for everything. And they, they sent me a message. They said, sorry, but you need to pay for that. And as a Yemeni, I can't travel to Bosnia. I need to travel to a third country to have the visa and then okay. to travel to Bosnia. So it was a lot of money to lose. And I was asking myself, is it really worth it to lose all this money just to see a Jew in my life? Mm. Or should I just stay at home and just forget about what I'm thinking? So I decided to do it, and so I paid for it.
1: So you went to Bosnia, but the big one, the, the, in effect, the most important conference you went to in your life was in Jordan. Correct. So tell me about that, and what year was that?
2: Uh, this was in the beginning of 2015, actually. I traveled to Jordan, and I, I met already Megan, who I know her from Yalla Young Leaders. this is
1: Megan, she's an American, she's living in Israel.
2: Uh, Yeah, she's from, yeah, she lives in Israel. She's American, she's Christian. She's Christian. She's married to? Palestinian.
1: Palestinian, okay. And she's at this conference.
2: Yeah, it was this conference, and me me and her, we know each other very well. We know about the peace building I do and what what she's doing. And I met also two people there, and I met them briefly. Uh, One of them, her name, name Natasha. Natasha, and Nat- she's an Australian. she's Australian American. Australian American who yeah. lives in Tel Aviv. Yeah. She lives in Tel Aviv. Her family in Atlanta. Uh. And uh, another boy, his name Justin. He's, and she's Jewish. She's Jewish. Another Jew from Georgia. of yeah. cool. Okay. <laughs> um, and then who else? Justin. Justin. And Justin, at that time, he's doing stand-up comedy shows, and uh, he's from San Francisco.
1: And he's what? What religion is he? Jew. He's Jewish. Okay. So you know a lot of Jews. Yeah. You've really you've really shot the moon. Okay. <laughs> so you show up in you show up in Jordan and you meet these people and then you go back. I met you're, them in, You're still working in the clinic at this time.
2: No, no, no. I was working with an organization, but at that time when I met them, I met them and it was a conference called Seeds of Peace. And when I met them, I had just a few conversations with them. With Natasha, for example, we speak about water, and it was fascinating with me about that she knows about the danger of water in Yemen, that you know we are suffering because there is no water anymore in Yemen. And with Justin, we speak about football. What we call it, football, you called it or call soccer or something like that. Um, <laughs> uh, and you know, we bonded. We became just kind of like friends, like just for ten minutes. And I gave him his card, and he gave me his card, and that's it. And then he went back to Yemen.
1: So meanwhile, there's been a geopolitical change in the interim. So we've had the Arab Spring, Correct. okay, which is also fed in the fantasy version of the Arab Spring by uh, by Facebook and by organizations and and the that leader you mentioned of Yemen has been toppled um, at this time, and then the country descends into conflict. Correct. So how does this how does this conflict play into the story?
2: For me, personally, I started receiving threats because a group uh, in Yemen called Houthis, they have this disgusting logo which says, death to America, death to Israel, damn the Jews. And they came and they controlled the capital city where I live. And you can imagine someone like me doing peace activities with Israelis, Jews, and Christians. It's like the first target for that. And I had to escape because I started seeing threats. So I, I thought that, you know, I will go to the south of Yemen and I will be safe. At least I will be far away from them. But when I, were, when I went to the wrong place in the wrong time, because when I went there, I found that there is extreme Sunni groups is located there.
1: So You show up in Aden in the south, known Correct. to us because of the bombing of the American, um, uh, the American ship in, in Aden, right? That takes place in Aden? Correct.
2: Yes, it was called cool, I yes, think. Yes, the
1: coal, the USS Cole. Right. So that's that's how we know that. So you show up there at the wrong time. You're in the you're in the wrong religious tradition at the wrong place. Yeah. This I mean, is because you now being identified Shia matters.
2: And before it was okay. It was totally it was okay to go there. I I used to go there every year. <laughs> there is no problem at all. But at that year when I moved to Aden. You know, what happened, Houthis also came all the way from Sana'a to Aden. And that bring the tension, start bringing the sectarian problem in Yemen.
1: So you, at this point, feel your life is in danger. Correct. Right. And so you do what you know best. You turn...
2: <laughs> First of all, I contact my organization. I, use, I used to work with Oxfam. And I contacted them. I told them, can you please help me out? And they said, we're so sorry. But, you know, because of the bombs... We can do a lot of things. And at that time, Saudi Arabia started to be part of the war in Yemen. So they're starting to do airstrikes.
1: So Saudi Arabia joined the war on the side of the Sunnis.
2: Correct. Because
1: they see it sort of as a proxy war with Iran.
2: It's more political issues. Like, you know, it's about controlling between Saudi Arabia and Iran, who will control Yemen more.
1: Got it. Uh, okay, so Oxfam says no.
2: Yeah. Um, your family is still back in Sana'a. I tried to contact with my family. They couldn't do anything for me. I contacted my friends who couldn't do anything for me.
1: So you do what every um, millennial does. You go to? Facebook. Facebook, okay. Um, so, and then what, tell me what you do.
2: I asked every single one that I know on Facebook if they can help me out. I didn't know what to do. There was extreme groups surrounding my apartment. Like I can see from my window that there is a group in the street just waiting there. And these kind of groups, they gave announcement. They gave announcement that anyone from the North, like me, Anyone has Shia background like me or Zaidi will be killed in the next 24 hours if they will not leave their houses. And if I leave, they will just recognize me from three things. From accents, we have different accents from the north and south. Because remember, Yemen used to be two countries, not one country. And also from my color skin, like how I look like. And also from my last name, my family name. So I couldn't move, I couldn't do anything. And that's when I decided that, you know, I need to use Facebook and ask people if they can give me any advice. Did you think this was going to work? Or
1: it was just an act of desperation and why not?
2: I prayed to God. And I told God that, you know, I thought that I'm doing the right thing. And now I'm in this situation. If I was doing the right thing, please help me out. And I sent the request.
1: Which God did you pray to? To Allah. Allah.
2: Allah. Well, uh, so you thought
1: Allah could help you find some Jews. They could save you. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Allah is it's, it's our God for everyone. Oh, um, okay.
1: There we go. Now you're getting the language. Okay. <laughs> um, okay, so you put this thing out. Did you, did you individually send messages to people? Or are you, like, post it on your, your wall?
2: I post it on my wall. I sent it to everyone. I was just really depressed that, you know, I, how I can help. Megan, who knows me the best. Uh, from. So Megan is the first to respond. Uh, Megan first, she sending messages to everyone should, that she knows. Uh, she she actually sent an email and BBC everyone that she knows in her contact. Ah, uh, and uh, she sent actually an email to Justin, and she didn't know that actually I know Justin. I see. And when she sent him an email, she says to him, "Do you know anyone who can help my friend in Yemen?" And he respond to her. He said like, "Listen, I don't know. I don't know anyone in Yemen, but I know this peace activist who can, who might be able to help your friend." And he gave her my contact information.
1: Right. So this is a great part of the story. So, so you call and t- I got a fr- she calls and she says, I have a friend in Yemen. She calls Justin. She says, and says well, I have a friend in Yemen. <laughs> and the friend in Yemen can help your friend. And the friend in Yemen and your friend are the same person. Correct. Okay. Um, so in some ways, because I, you know, I don't want to run, I'm already over my time here. Um, one of the pleasures of reading this book, and I obviously encourage all of you to read the book, give it away. Amazing, you know. Passover and Easter presents, even though they're um, um One of the pleasures of reading the book is actually following the whole story. So I don't want to go through the whole story, but tell me, tell me like the most important things that happen.
2: The most important thing that these people like, you know, they, although that I was alone in my apartment, I was alone. I didn't feel that I can do it. They always was near me in some way. They were always responding to my messages. They were always with me online 24 hours. When, for example, when I was hearing airstrike or gunshotting, I was sending ma- an, a message on Facebook, and in one minute, I received a response from them. That was an amazing thing from them. And uh, the second thing that, you know, that I, do you want me to say about what I learned from my, my experience?
1: Eventually, but I want to know your experience, because most people don't know the story. So they these people begin to band together, determined to get you out.
2: It's an amazing thing that because they don't know each other very well, and one of them lives in New York. One of them lives in San Francisco. And two girls lives in, in, in Tel Aviv at that time. They, they didn't meet each other. And they, the four of them, they work as one team to help me out. Uh, in one moment, actually, they start teaching me how to use Google Maps.
1: Right. So the issue is you have to get from your apartment to uh, uh Sheraton Hotel. Uh, to, the, to the Sheraton Hotel. And you don't know how to do this.
2: No. I mean, we are in a war zone. There's no taxis. There's no cars. How you can go there? Uber, just disappointing. So, yeah. a... Uber
1: doesn't solve your problem? Okay, so, <laughs> so you have to get from your apartment, and you
2: don't know where the Sheraton is. I didn't know even where I live, because in Yemen, we don't have numbers for buildings. We only have buildings. So if someone wants to visit me, I told him, like, you know, I am the second house near the supermarket. That's how they can know where I live. And when they told me, where are, where, where are you, I said, I don't know. Like, it's a building in that street. And they said to me, have you ever used Google Maps? I said, no. So they start teaching me how to use Google Maps.
1: So you then get yourself to the Sheraton... Um, and then and then what's the next big step you then have to get out of
2: the country hmm. an amazing thing that they did they start reaching to countries because there's a couple of countries was doing evacuation for their own citizens in Yemen including Russia France and India and they reach India and they ask India if they can take me out with them
1: so they call the indian government
2: they start to say, Hi, I'm an American, <laughs> and
1: I have a Yemeni friend who's in the Sheraton because he can read Google Maps, and I met him on Facebook, and would you please evacuate him?
2: How'd that go over? Actually, it happened in some way, yes. Uh, <laughs> in, one mo- in one moment, one of them actually called them at the Indian government and asked them if they can help. But no, what they did, they started reaching organizations, and they started reaching the United Nations, also senators in the United States. And they were asking them, Can you please support us in our request? to ask the Indian government if they can take Muhammad out with them. And they reached a senator from Illinois, his name Mark Kirk, who used to be the senator of Illinois-Chicago. And he supported that, and he wrote a letter to the Indian government to ask them if they can evacuate me with them. And uh, eventually it happened. So
1: you eventually get get on a
2: ship. How did you get on this ship? Well, the ship was in the middle of the sea. It was a big military ship. And it was in the middle of the sea because the fighting was... So it was violence, and they couldn't come to the port. So the only way to go there is by fishing boats, small fishing boats. So, oh, so you have
1: to get on the fishing boat to get to the big vessel, and then the big vessel takes
2: you to Djibouti. So I went to Djibouti. Uh, Anybody
1: here been to Djibouti? Uh, and my map? Okay, a second country. Okay, fine. <laughs>
2: um, um, so I went to Djibouti, and it, the amazing thing that, you know, I crossed the Red Sea. I went from Yemen to Djibouti on passed over. Uh, it's like Moses, but in the wrong direction, in some way. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what is this a story about? Is this a story about the internet? Is this a story about young people determined to make the world better? Is this a story about Americans and Yemenis and uh, Israelis? What is this a story about?
2: Story is about our life in general, like about everything that you mentioned, actually. These people who helped me out, the four of them, they didn't spend money to help me out. They didn't actually, they're not Superman or Batman or anything like that. They're just normal like me and you. But the difference is that they said yes to me. When I asked for them to help me out, they said, we want to help you out. They spent time and they believed on me and they helped me out. This is the first thing. And the second thing is that from my experience, like, you know, you shouldn't believe anything that you hear, you shouldn't believe anything that you see in the news. You always need to seek what's actually the truth behind that. And don't be ashamed that you're different. I was always asking God, like, why you give me such a disability? Now, like, I'm happy that I have such a disability.
1: I was in Tahrir Square in February of 2011, in the middle of the Arab Spring. And And I wrote a book called Generation Freedom about this time across the Middle East. And the story that was told across that region at that time was that the Internet was going to make everything better. That the internet did not distinguish between boys and girls. Girls were not being taught in, in schools. That the internet did not distinguish uh, between uh, religions. That the internet could not tell this difference. That the internet would connect people. That Facebook would rally people. That these were, And there was this huge swell around the world that social media was going to now change this part of the world. And Today, in large parts of the world, that is looked at as a naive joke that basically there has been a counter-revolution, there has been pushback, there have been dictatorships that have risen up again, there has been war that has broken out uh, in the wake of all this. Your story would seem to adhere to the fantasy narrative of social media, and yet the counter-narrative is also out there. How do you reconcile those two?
2: Education. You know, in Yemen, for example, we didn't know what democracy is. And then you have the Arab Spring, and you have all this power, and you know that you have all this rights that you can use in one time. We, we don't know how to do it. We don't know how actually we can use such power. The religious groups came, like Houthis, and they said, oh, we know actually how to support you because we are close to God. And a lot of people, they believed him. Because do you know why? They're not educated. They don't know how to use their rights and how they can do it. The, the Arab Spring worked amazingly in Tunisia. In, Tunis, yeah. in Tunis, we said in Arabic because people know what democracy is. But in Yemen at that time, I born with Ali Abdullah Saleh. I only know one president of Yemen. I do not know what will happen after him and how we can handle that. So when we had another president, which is his vice president, who is weak, who didn't know how to control the country, who didn't know how to deal with Al-Qaeda, with Houthis, with everything like that. So everyone started to take a piece of that. Social media actually helped us a lot to know the truth. Because even the media in Yemen, you know, when I was in my apartment, for example, hiding from the airstrikes, the only resource that I can find to tell me what's happening in the neighborhood next to me is Facebook. And the news wasn't even speak about it. If you open the, the former channel in Yemen, was actually bringing Quran. So you listen to the Quran, you don't know what's actually what's happening next to you.
1: So two final tough questions before I open it up. Question number one. I would like nothing more than to believe that your story is the future of the world, that there are young people who have worked, who have interfaith connections, who are involved in international organizations, who can rally together and save somebody in an impossible situation, an incredibly dramatic and heroic story. But is this a real story or is this just a one-off? Are you just the one um, exception that proves the rule? Because you spoke English, you were educated, you had internet access. You had these friends. Is this a story that is going to be duplicated in the coming years, or is this just a one-off?
2: I was speaking in um, in Stanford University, and two students uh, came to me and they said, like, you know, we really want to be like the people who helped you out. We want to help someone like you. And eventually, they helped a friend of mine actually escape from Sudan, and he's here today in Washington D.C. And not only that. I mean, if you think this story is, is good or like uh, doing amazing things, from this story, I found people who came to me and they said, we want to read the Quran from today. We want to understand actually Islam, not only to listen to what the media says about Islam and because they only think about Islam as an ISIS. They didn't know that Islam actually is a beautiful religion. I found Muslims who came to me and they said, we want to read the Torah from today and the Bible from today.
1: So if you could look everybody in the eye here tonight, and tell them what they should take away from this story,
2: what they can do
1: to imp- improve this. I've been involved in hundreds, maybe even thousands, of interfaith conversations of the nature of this. And I always say at the end, this issue is too important. It can't be said, we, it, let's solve that problem over there. Or, I hope they solve that problem in Jerusalem. It has to happen in every community and in every neighborhood and every heart. So if you looked everybody in the eye here and asked them, what do you want them to do? Do you want them to read the Quran? Do you want them to go on Facebook? Do you want them to find somebody who needs to get out? What do you want everybody here to do?
2: I want them to find the purpose of their lives. I want them to go searching for everything that they, they hear about. If, when you hear about Islam, go search about what Islam is local about, is about really. Don't even listen to me. Go by yourself and listen to it and search about it and see what Islam is about. The people who helped me out also, like, you know, when they helped me out, they just spent an amazing time helping me. And you can also do the same thing. You walk in the streets, and you find people who's asking for help, and how many times we just ignore them and just we walk. We never thought that maybe we can change their lives, literally, even if they're faking that, maybe in one day, like I know that people come and they tell me, but these people, they, don't, they have money. They just acting that like they don't have money. Um, you can really make change even in their lives, even if they're faking it. That's our show for the week. Thanks again for tuning in to the Yavi Podcast
0: don't forget. For more information about the Ivy community and to find out about live events happening near you, visit ivy.com. That's I-V-Y dot See you next time.